Welcome to Brews Rock. We're Chuck Mountain, a band nestled in the beautiful beer country of North Carolina. Each week, we pick brewers' minds about their brewing philosophy and pick up tricks to bring new life to your home brew. We played at countless breweries and decided it was about time to learn how to craft our own. What it takes to take down the mountain. mountain. Well, come on out and show us what you got. What you got, man? We're hosting a darts tournament at Jake's Billiards here in Greensboro, North Carolina, on March 23rd. 23rd. Come on out for pint night and enjoy a nice fool's journey, hazy pale ale, made in collaboration with Little Brother Bruin and Chuck Mountain. mountain. There will be prizes for the grand prize winner. There will be fun to be had by out. We'll see you there. See you there. If you dare. <laughs> Welcome to Brews Rack. Today we're excited to share our visit to Goose and the Monkey Brew House in Lexington, North Carolina, and our chat with their brewer, Eric Gibbon. We talked to Eric about opening a brewery right before the pandemic hit and how the community rallied around them during the shutdown. Eric also shared some great insights into his brewing process and where his recipe ideas come from and how he tries to make everyone happy by brewing beers that taste close to their old favorites. Let's not forget about the hilarious name of their walk-in fridge for their kegs, Christopher Walken. Sit back, grab a cold one, and join us as we chat with Eric from Goose and the Monkey Brewhouse. Start off introducing yourself, where we are, how long you've been brewing, and what you got, what got you here. My name is Eric Gibble. This is Goose and the Monkey Brewhouse in Lexington, North Carolina. We've been open for three years as of this month. Before this, I was home brewing for about a decade before I started here. Everyone we've talked to, they're like, yep, home brewing, and then be- yeah. becomes a brewer. You know, we started doing it just for fun. It was a hobby, but we just kept doing it, and it started just moving further and further into our lives. So it started being almost full-time hobby. They were like, we need to just make money off of this. This is ridiculous. So why we're spending all this money. Yeah. Yeah. And, just you know, to drink it we all might as well out. just make this a career. And, and that's what we did. We taught ourselves how to do it. And, we, and then we lucked into this. this. Yeah. Because you said three years ago this month, that would be right before the pandemic started. Yep. February 29th was our grand opening. Oh, what a great day too. Leapy. Yeah. February 29th. It was a beautiful weather. Tons of people. We had a soft opening the week before, just friends and family and stuff, and that was great. And then the grand opening, we were packed wall to wall. And then 16 days later, we shut down. Dang, man. Yeah. Did y'all shut down for good or did you still stay open and do together and stuff? We didn't do food trucks at first. We did uh, what we call our bodega, which we had one of the garage doors open with the tables across it so nobody Mm -hmm. could come inside. People would pull up, they would order what they wanted. We had just ordered an October uh, crowler machine Like it just delivered right before pandemic happened. And so we were filling from the taps. So that thing got more use in the first two months than typically you'd do in two years. Oh, wow. So we've we've been through a couple of parts in that thing, (laughs) but it's worked great because the week after the pandemic, you couldn't order a crowler machine 
there was a six months backlog. Oh yeah. Everybody bought up as many as they possibly could because they knew what, what was going to happen. So we were really lucky that I came in right when I did. We were lucky that the community was on board. So we had people out from High Point, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Charlotte were driving up to buy our beer so that we would stay over. That's awesome. So yeah. that was really cool too. That's the, great. The community support kept our doors open. That was yeah. a big thing. Because I would say that has to be hard being excited, opening up. And then like you said, 16 days later. Yeah. And I was, I had my head buried in the sand because we were so focused on getting it open, getting it going, brewing up, getting our production schedule going. And then suddenly they're like, we got to shut down. So we had to furlough all of our front of house people. So it was me, the other brewer, the owners, and our social media guy. We were doing everything. So it got a little nuts, but it it worked. And then as soon as we got the 25% occupancy, we brought everybody back. We said, just hold on for a few months. So that was March. So by July, we had 25% occupancy. And again, we were lucky because 25% occupancy for us is like 120 people. Okay, you guys hey, got a yeah, big it's spot. Huge. I didn't think about that because a lot of restaurants, it was how many chairs there are, but for you guys, it's how many people can legally be standing. Yeah, in it was the fire marshal's determination of our occupancy minus 75%. And that was what we started out as, and I think it was end of June or July. And yeah, we just started doing that, started bringing people back, started outside seating was a big thing. We wanted to make sure that was, but it was always like how many feet away from each table and yeah. what's the flow and that stuff. So. We had very little seating. We tried to keep it as open as possible because we wanted to follow those guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. You um, want to keep people safe and people want to feel safe. They want to be able to feel like they have a place they can come yeah. and have a little bit of normalcy back. Yep. We spent a lot of money in masks. They might make sure people had them. Yep. They didn't have them to provide them for it and stuff. And we got through it. And that was the main thing. Just kept brewing, kept selling. And you know, here we are today. And we yep. were out of there. Back. So speaking of brewing, tell us a little bit about your setup here at the Goose of the Monkey. We'll start with the, the brew house itself. Okay. So this is a Deutsch beverage, 10 barrel, three vessel, a steam jacketed brew house. So hot liquor tank, it's a t- 20 barrel hot liquor tank, mashed water ton, boil kettle and whirlpool. So after the boil, you get a lot of hops, coagulated proteins, just other things. If you're adding spices or other stuff. It's solids and you don't want to run it through something like a heat exchanger because it's narrow and it can get clogged. So you take your hot wort from your boil kettle after your boil, you put it in the whirlpool and the, with the pump system, it actually spins it up. So it's cycling really fast. And you do that for five to 30 minutes, depending on what you want to do in the whirlpool, because you can add more ingredients in there too, if you yeah. want to, depending on the type of beer. And what that does is it concentrates all your solids to the center. And then we draw off from the side. It's hard to see, but okay. we draw off from the side. So we keep all that solid crap from getting into our heat exchanger and our fermenters. That's smart. So it's just another way to clear out the beer and make it cleaner, get a cleaner fermentation and a cleaner product. Like, is it still super hot in there? Is that yeah. like cooling it down in the yeah, process it too? comes out boiling. So it's 212, comes through here and it drops to about 205. So when, it, when it's hitting this thing, it goes from a 202, 205 to 68 degrees by the time it exits. So yeah, we, so we have four 10-barrel fermenters and one 10-barrel brights. Part of the, the history was we originally just wanted to be a tap house to where we're just servicing the bar. We're just brewing beer for this place. Yeah, like microbrewery style. Pandemic, can't do that. So how do you move product? Got to package it, got to sell it outside. So we're not built for it. And that's been a struggle for us is to have enough capacity to both have enough on tap for our customers as well as getting stuff out on the market. Yeah. You talked about like 
brewing philosophies and brewing and how we look at it. That, that was one of the driving forces was, how do we stay open? And one of those things was, we can't just sell it here because we're closed. We got to get out and sell it food line, sell it wherever it was open. So that sort of shaped how we started as a company. You know, we went from, oh, we're just going to do this to, oh no, we got to do the complete opposite with the equipment that wasn't designed for it, yeah. which can limit what you can do, or you have to take it off into some interesting directions. So let's say if you were going to just do tap room, like what would you change about your whole setup here? Well, nothing. If hindsight's 2020 and all, and if the pandemic hadn't happened, we would have been looking at expansions to either more tanks or bigger tanks. I mean, that's still the case. That's still what we want to do is more variety, more volume helps when it comes to distribution or, you know, we're getting busier and busier. We're, we've got a new brick oven pizza we're opening Oh, nice. as a restaurant here. We're expecting more customers to come in. Yeah. More customers means more drinking, means either I brew it faster yeah. <laughs> or I make more of it at, at one time. So it becomes a logistics game at a certain point. So yeah, I mean, it's just how to make a product as best you can with the equipment on hand and then look into the future for possible expansions, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so I have a question for you. For most places we've been in, your ceilings are a little bit lower. They look like they're, what, 12 foot ceilings? Yes. Every other tank I've seen, it just gets bigger, that you get taller. Right. Do they make wider tanks? Yes. But okay. they're also custom jobs. So, and that's, that's one of our issues is, had been, because originally, and this is, I mean, we're talking, this is back in 2015, 2014, when we were talking about this, conceptualizing it, where we're going to put it, what buildings we're going to put it in, that kind of stuff. It wasn't just the site we were looking at, but this was one of the sites that were, say, top. We're going to put it upstairs. Could we put it upstairs? We put it downstairs to the height of the ceiling. There's a lot of things that we didn't think about or didn't think about enough that we realized. So one of these things was, oh, we can't put it upstairs. They're too heavy. So if you put a bunch of liquid and a big metal thing, <laughs> your footprint suddenly becomes, can your concrete and your floor hold 15,000, 16,000 pounds in a four foot square? An engineer has to determine that. This build, building was built in 54, 55. So you can't just pull out the drawings because there aren't any. There may have been, but there aren't any more. They don't have them on a Google Drive or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I never thought about height until I noticed how close your hot liquor tank yeah. was to your ceiling. Yeah, so that's 20 barrels. That's a 20 barrel hot liquor tank. That's a 10 barrel, so that's half as much. So to put a cone on that much volume, suddenly it goes right up. So you got to build something that's wider. Yeah, but the cone's there for a reason and you can't have too wide of a cone. Otherwise it stops being a fermenter. Yeah. yeah or as effective as a conical fermenter is supposed to be designed as. So there's some design constraints, but we found a couple of companies that hopefully, and I'll have to confirm this, we have CAD drawings or whatever, that we can fit 20s in this space. Hypothetically, our next step would be increase tank size or add more tanks. It's, all, it's always one or the other, bigger tanks or more tanks. More tanks yeah. It has to do with how your brew house is built, all of your peripherals. This is run on a steam jacket. Your boiler can only do so much, well, only as much as it's designed to do. So yeah. I couldn't add another brew house onto the, on, or I had to get a bigger boiler or get another boiler. This stuff is cool with glycol. You can see the big black pipes. So all that's running glycol through here constantly to regulate the temperature. So this is at 32 degrees, 31 degrees. You know, that one's at 56 degrees. I can add more tanks up to a certain point until the glycol stops working. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's like I said, it's the logistics production game when it comes to, okay, what do you invest in first that will increase your capacity, your ability to sell, that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah. it's production. It's so. definitely a numbers game and yeah. just learning that. Did you have people consulting you on that or is that just your knowledge? Like y'all putting your knowledge together? No, not at all. So... <laughs> One of the reasons we went with Deutsch was that they were, they offered a turnkey brew house. So they, okay. 
designed it. They had everything together. So when we bought it, we bought the brew house, we bought the fermenters, we bought the boiler, we bought the chiller. Everything came as a package. Now it was a little bit more than buying everything ad hoc, but they also knew who to talk to, how to hook it up, all that stuff. All the design stuff was included in that price. So you were paying for some of their labor, some of their design, stuff like that as well. Yeah. And we thought that was the best because nobody in the original team knew how to open up a brew house. Like, how do you open up a restaurant if you don't know how to open up a restaurant? You can go buy in a pre-existing restaurant and learn yeah. from there and then go open up a new one from scratch. And that's what we did. We went with, you were paying them for their advice, their designs, that kind of stuff. So. That's cool. And I think that was smart. We could have done that, but that with the pandemic, we would have never gotten where yeah. we were. So, so the glycol, it's like, where are you piping all this in and storing? Oh, so it's actually out back. Oh, really? Yeah. So it runs all the way out there to just a big compressor that refrigerates the glycol in a big pump that circulates it through. So that's running at 20 PSI at 26 degrees. Do you use city water instead of a cold liquor tank? Yes. Is that frozen? Yep. Yep. It gets interesting in the summertime. Our water source for Lexington is surface water. So water coming into the building can be anywhere between 74 to 80 degrees. So our cooling capacity is much lower, but yeah, we have workarounds. Yeah. That is the biggest light call system I've seen. Yeah. Though. That's pretty impressive. It's extensive, but again, we're looking to the future. Uh -huh. So this space here can fit another four to five tanks. Yeah. So we'll pull off of the loop here and have more tanks here. So we knew, we, we made, we paid for extra glycol run to make sure we had room to stub to expand more yeah. tanks. That's Rather smart, than smart. expand on one aspect and realize you have to expand on another. Yeah, because if you made it too short or you couldn't get access to it, then you'd have to buy another glycol unit altogether. Yeah. So pay a little bit more upfront, you could expand later, that kind of stuff. That was what we were hoping. And so this is your, your grain room behind you at the garage door? Yeah, this is the crush room. That's smart because I know a lot of people build off their rooms to keep the dust in. Here, you got a big old garage door. Yeah, we actually have a fan, intake, outtake, crush room, a hopper, and then our auger runs over to the mash tun. Yeah, so we, we brewed a beer with little brother and we, me and Sammy were the one dumping all the grain in there. He said he was sneezing, tasting like beer for a couple of days. It can get dusty, but yeah, we built in all that stuff. It's all explosion proof motors and stuff like that to make sure that the dust doesn't do anything unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So explosion proof motor. Does that yep. mean, so dust can get in there and want to blow it up? No, it's sealed. So you can't get dust in there ah. to explode. Yeah. Hey, I learned, if I didn't learn anything else, I learned that today. Yeah. All like all the motors at like a flour mill. Okay. have to be uh, rated explosion proof because of all that. Dust. All the dust that we'll get uh, in. Yeah. Sugar, any kind of sugar refinery, anything that has fine particulate uses those particular motors. Stuff I learned when we were trying to open up. So yeah, so th that's this. And the, the boilers here, like I said, they, we got it into a package. So it's just a Columbia steam boiler, low pressure, 12 PSI. So yeah, boiler room. So steam pipe comes out, runs over there. And that's where all the black pipes are is charged steam. So you said you homebrewed for 10 years. What got you in homebrewing? I read a book about it. So we were that. like looking at it going, let's try this. It doesn't look too hard. So we did. We were cooking on the stovetop in an apartment for a while. We get off of work, go, let's brew something. Six hours later, it's three in the morning. We should have probably planned that better, but okay. And then we, we had beer and then we'd bottle it up. We'd uh, raid uh, all the recycling bins at local bars and stuff for bottles because we were just doing that. So we'd soak them and sanitize them and fill them up and stick them in the closet for a month, let them carbonate. Yeah, it was highly impractical, but it was a lot of fun. And that was the whole point of it. it was, was it, it a was, lot of beer? Like, I feel like if I ever started doing that, once I got in the midst of it, I would be just 
raging alcoholic. <laughs> but it's self-regulating. Like I said, when you make a batch, when we were doing it, we weren't kegging, we were bottle conditioning. Oh, okay. So we'd make it, it would finish fermenting, but we'd get it cleaned up, make it look pretty. Then you have to bottle it and let it carbonate. So you could drink flat beer, but it doesn't taste very good. Yeah, yeah so you so just have to wait for it to... You'd sit there and fill up all these bottles and carefully cap them and label them and date them. And then you'd have to let it sit for a month. Maybe not a month, but that's what we read. So that's what we did. Yeah, then every now and then we'd open one up. But then you had that sort of weird hoarder. We did all this work, but we got to space it out. And then like six months later, like, God, I got 60 bottles in my yeah, closet. I, I got to get gonna, going. You know, I got to drink this stuff. It's old beer now. And then we got into kegging. That was great because the minute it was done, you just force carb it. Boom. But you know, you have to buy a kegerator and you got to buy kegs. And you got to buy CO2. Yeah. You buy a regulator, we got the and you got to clean those kegs. And that slow buildup was oh, this is way more convenient. Suddenly you're buying all this extra equipment. It's like any other kind of expensive hobby. You yeah. know, you, you're buying more stuff to do more, taking more time, taking like more music. money. Yeah, yeah, like music. Yeah, we don't yeah, know anything exactly. about that. We understand. <laughs> We've realized how much the similarities between that becoming a hobby to a career. And I mean, it's like any other hobby. It's fly fishing. It's like collecting stamps or guns or anything. Paintball. Paintball. It just builds and you learn more and you learn how much you don't know at first. Hopefully you, you keep that because that helps you keep developing your craft or your hobby or whatever. Yeah. Just be a forever learner. Yeah. That's what, yeah. I've, what I've learned is being a forever learner yeah, is a good a thing. Being a forever yeah. learner is great. Yeah. So Christopher's here. This is our, our main walk-in. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. That's a nice walk-in. The best walk-in name we've seen. I think so it's the far. only walk-in yeah. name I've seen and I love it. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I wish I, I could play weapon of choice constantly inside of here, but yeah. I haven't convinced <laughs> the owners yet of being able to do that. Come on, guy. Oh, yeah. So this is where we have all our beer. We got a long draw tap system. So that is tapped here and it goes all the way out to our bar underneath the concrete. It's glycol cold as well. And yeah. Wait, that then taps are glycol pulled? Yeah. So all the taps come off of here and go into this trunk line, the boy pilot. And then we have glycol running here to keep it cold all the way down the tap line. Nice. And that's to keep it from foaming up and, that's awesome. and stuff. So yeah. That's so smart. Yep. So just put in a nitrogen tap. I was pretty happy with that. Yeah. I know. Huge walk-in. It, it is. Did you all buy all these kegs too then? Are these like brand we, new kegs? These for are, they're a lease to own. Okay. So it's just, it's another way to get a lot of kegs right away. We're just financing them. And so I think we can buy them all that this year. It just seems like the way you did it is more, this is a long-term game. It's like, let's invest. We know after time, like this is really going to be popping off. And it, yeah. it doesn't seem that way most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, we were lucky to partner with people who yeah. were able to do that. We're able to get that capital and able to get that investment to start something like this. Where I started off, I didn't have any equity. Like I could, I had a skill, I had some knowledge. I found some people that had the equity and the ability to, to use it, to, to awesome. get a, a big enough loan to do something about it. So again, lucky. That's, okay. all, that's all it is. Right place, right time, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's about it for the brew house. Oh, if you're talking about homebrew, this is a pilot system, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I was thinking. Some of the things that were I see sitting around look like a smaller system. Like Yeah. So this is a brew in a bag, but it's a fancy one. This is a, a claw hammer. So it's just all in one system. I've got this sort of set up to do it as soon as I can clear to my do, schedule. To do like small batches? Yeah. So I want to try weird things that nobody's ever heard of, or at least, yeah. you know, for our demographic, we just want to do a couple of sixles of it just to see if it would garner any interest. What kind of beers are your, are your staples here? Lagers and IPAs. West Coast or East Coast IPAs? I've done both. Our signature, our 
the goose of the monkey IPA is called the Wandering Pig. It's a hazy IPA. So it's, yeah, it's an East Coast, New England. The, one of the beers we're canning on Thursday is actually our West Coast IPA. That's our okay. Pacific Pig. That's, yeah, I'm proud of that one. That's, that turned out really good. Uh, we've got what we call the Perfect Blend, which is our kitchen sink beer is what I like to call it. It's whatever I've got on hand at the time that I'm going to brew it. So I look through and I go, what do I have? And then I try to throw something together. So every time I brew the Perfect Blend, it's different. So yeah, never, cool. it's never been repeated because it's just... Is that you keep on tap or do you can it all? Yeah, that's actually our, our second most popular IPA is. Okay. Is I keep the ABV the same. So it's a six and a half to 7%. Does the IBU change though? It does depending on the type of hops. Mm -hmm. If they're higher AA, then I'll adjust the recipe. I don't want it like a 90 IBU. Yeah. Nobody's going to drink <laughs> So that. you try to keep it in a range? Uh, yeah, I try to keep it, say, 50 and 70. And yeah, so if I do late editions, I do Whirlpool editions, dry hop. And depending on the hop, like I'm not going to throw a whole bunch of cluster in the, in, and completely make it unpalatable. Now, what kind of hops do you use? Do you have the flash frozen or the little pellet? Oh, yeah, a little pellet. Look at those. Yeah, the T90 pellets. Cool. Uh, that's Sats. I use that for my lager. I got a bunch of El Dorado. Oh, yeah. Magnum for bittery. Sultana. So next perfect blend is obviously going to have Sultana in it because I have a lot of Sultana. What kind of malts do you use? I mean, it depends on the beer. So, so far I've used Proximity Malt. They're based out of Colorado and Delaware. And LD Carlson sells malts and they have a pretty decent price per pound. That's one of the things we had to be very aware of our, our production budget early on. I've kept that philosophy. So I'm not paying for, it's hard to go from like, shoestring budget and then suddenly start paying yeah. Marisotter prices. And when I can make beer that people seem to like and enjoy, and sometimes I do that because it calls for it depending on the recipe. So we had an Imperial Hazy IPA. So it was 10 and a half percent. I use a better ingredient because I, I needed to achieve a 10 and a half percent beer on the system that I have. So that does change things a little bit. And so where do your uh, recipes typically come from? Like what I'll do is like start with BJCP, like, okay, this is a, an American Amber Ale. So it has like, this color range, this IBU range, this alcohol range. And then I'll sort of play with it and go, you know, okay, well, I don't really want to do this or this seems to work. This doesn't. Oh, this hop's available. What will it do to my IBUs? So when do I add it? You know, do I add it, you know, mid-boil? Do I add it late-boil? Do I add it whirlpool? Typically, I'm not going to end up with a Hefeweizen if I start with an Amber Ale, right? Yeah. But I can stray off of those, like, competition guidelines sometimes when I make something because it works, it tastes good. So yeah. And then read forums, read books, talk to people, that kind of stuff. So, oh, we tried this or don't do this. It caught my brew house on fire. That kind of, you know, and you sort of, <laughs> you learn from the industry and, and talk to people and stuff like, I uh, probably never, will never use raw wheat again. I, I did that once I learned, I did not enjoy brewing with it. Wheat? Wheat. Okay. Yeah. Raw wheat. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tend not to pay attention anyway but no because it just my equipment wasn't set up for that but it but i wanted to try it out because it was a it's a classic historical type beer that uses raw wheat in their recipes their brew houses are built to process to that, it yeah yeah not necessarily built for it i'd have to do a lot of tweaking and adjusting and stuff that just wasn't worth it when i can accomplish it by doing something slightly different so i'm not like a purist i don't need to be like this was brewed in 1789 this way and it has to be <laughs> No, I'd be like, oh, this is what it tasted like. How do I do that with what I got? And yeah. that's what I like to do is I've got a pre-prohibition lager on tap. It's what was brewed before like World War II. So who was brewing it? Uh, German immigrants were brewing their Pilsner style. So if you look back into the classic Bavarian Pilsner, German Pilsner, stuff like that, it reflected that, but they weren't importing 
like you can today, hops and yeah. yeast and malt from Germany as easily or at all. So what do they you have? Grabbing whatever was near them, right? Yeah. What do you have on hand? What's what? Who's growing what in your town or your city that you can use with the philosophy of, oh, this is what I grew up brewing in Germany. You would get a certain type of beer. So I read about the history of it. I read about that you can find historical documents on recipes and stuff like that and go, okay, this is sort of what it is. And then talk to people and then give it a shot. Yeah. So that's what we did. So it turns out to be a kind of a hoppy light lager, a bit more ABV, a little bit more hops, a little bit more bitter than your classic domestic that you have post-World War II. Um, but yeah, that, like you said, what, what we brewed is what our customers drink, our demographic. They like, and that's as close to a domestic lager as you can get. It's a lot of my effort is to go into providing them with something like that. So we've got the Elk Cubed, the Lexington Lake. That's our, that's what we sell the most of. People drink a stupid amount of it. It's awesome. It's that popular. So like 25 of our sales is one beer and that's the Elk Cube. Oh, wow. Hey. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a good beer. I think you got a winner there. Yeah, it's pretty good. Unfortunately, it's a lager. Yeah. And lagers take longer to brew yep. than any other Don't beer. Don't want to rush your lagers. We learned that. Yeah. It takes a, a lot more effort, time, whatever, to, to get a good lager out. And that's one of my constraints is time. The minute it hits a fermenter, how long does it take to get something that you can put on tap? That's the big thing. Because hot side, the brew house, that's eight hours. Once it hits cold side, once it hits fermenter space, that can be anywhere from... 10 to 30 days, depending on what you're brewing. Are you brewing an IPA? Are you brewing a Quebec? And it's all about how fast can you make something that's good? So yeah, and that's part of the challenge. So, so do you just always have one of those brewing? Yeah, Fermenter 4 is L-Cubed. Okay. L-Cubed, Miranda FX, our A-Train, which is our coffee vanilla blondes, Pacific Pig, and our Seductive Mullet. Seductive Mullet. I've seen that's the other you one have that in cans, don't you? Huh? You have that in cans yep. now? I've seen the picture. I'm like, yep. that's... Seductive Mullet. That's good, are Great yeah. American Beer Festival. Oh, that one was in the Great American Beer Festival? Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. That was a very pleasant surprise. That. We were excited about that. So. Did it win? Silver. Silver medal. Oh, there yeah. we go. That's a winner in my book. Dang yeah. it. It's better than I've ever done. That's all I got We sent five, five of our beers to compete. We silvered in American Amber Lager, which was. That's super. So what comes from that? Other than just winning the silver medal, is there like any special things you're invited to? Or? Yeah, some of it's bragging rights, some of it's recognition of like your hard work. I mean, that's a big thing, you know, yeah. so people talk about it. Our sales tripled. It was recognized. A lot of people go, oh, I want to try that now. The Lexington community really engaged. They saw that happen and they sent a lot of congratulations in. So there, it did generate a lot of interest. Typically, that's our second or third best-selling beer per week is that. That was like the main thing I wanted. It, I just didn't really understand what all comes with winning in a beer festival. Mostly it's just a really fun time. It's a great experience, but it, there is actually tangible benefits to it. Yeah. As, as long as you can take advantage of them. And like, like I said, our community was able to get that out and they were excited. We were, which was awesome. So that, that helped a lot. And we, we get to put, I don't have the shirt, but we do. We put the big metal on the back of our shirt. That's awesome. Yeah, that's because we're very new. To we know beers. Yeah. We, we drink all kinds of beers. We played it all kinds. Of, we played right next door. We drank the beer. Yeah. But just learning all this side of the world, it's it's super fascinating. Oh yeah. Me. Going from a home brewer to a commercial setting, it, it's a completely different thing. There's a, there was a huge learning curve. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a shop class in high school and then going to a full construction site. Sure, concepts are kind of the same, but there's a lot more engineering to it that you don't really know yeah. until you start doing it. 
unless you have a formal education. We've got schools in North Carolina that teach fermentation science. They yeah. teach the business, teach the engineering, teach biology, teach chemistry. So, I mean, there are people who have degrees. And again, that's why I lucked out so much was that I'm self-taught. I don't have certifications, stuff like that. But I was able to teach myself enough to impress enough people to be able to give myself the chance to be able to brew on a commercial system and learn how to do it. So yeah, and I'm still learning every day. It's something new, it's something different. Out of everyone we've talked to, only one person's gone to that brew school or has gone to a brew school. Yeah. Yeah. And he homebrewed, I think he said for 10 years before he went. Yeah. yeah. He just wanted to get an extra foot in the door. Yeah, and it may be just more of a location. You know, you, the densest population of breweries is, is not the triad. Yeah. So when it comes to getting a degree at like NC State or App State, then you have to go and find a brewery and then that may be in Michigan, it may be in California or Oregon or something like that. So yeah, you, you tend probably not to stick around after you get your degree. Yeah, yeah. If you were going to give somebody that, you know, people that are home brewing or people that are trying to become a brewer one day advice on like just things that really helped you along your journey of learning to brew, what would those be? So home brewing as a hobby is supposed to be fun. That's the big thing. So if you want to stick with that, and slowly improve. I mean, any kind of hobby, you slowly improve. You're never just, hopefully you don't stagnate. That's, <laughs> yeah. but if you're happy with how you homebrew, keep doing what you're doing. If you want to improve, don't stress about it. Learn, talk to people, experiment. You're going to dump some batches. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it can be expensive if you're on a budget, but you're supposed to enjoy yourself. So go, oh, well, I learned something this time. Always kind of look for the positive. If you're trying to teach yourself to improve, that's what you're doing as a, like a home craft. And yeah, push yourself a little bit more. But again, and unless you're making money off of it, don't stress about it too yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> don't brew with stress, man. You can yeah. taste it in the batch. Yeah, yeah. you can. Diacetol has, <laughs> goes hand in hand. You know? Butter popcorn, man. <laughs> so where did uh, the name come from? Yeah. That was from the owners. It's a local nursery rhyme or something that they thought that was a cool name. And it worked for us. So... But it's the yeah. three, three, six, nine, the goose drank wine. I can never remember the whole thing, but it's, it's that preschool nursery rhyme. That was local. I have to look it up. I know. I've never, I mean, yeah, never heard of it, but I'll look it up. That's for sure. The goose and the monkey. Yeah. Something the streetcar line. I, yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've heard it so many times that I can, I don't know why it doesn't stick to my head, but it doesn't. So I don't know, but it's a great name because there's so many ways to play off of it. And you yeah, know, it stands the out. beers or getting artwork for it. Yeah. 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 And that's what, I mean, Caleb is our art guy. He does social media, does all the, all our labels. He's incredible. And like he, we wouldn't have gotten as much, you know, like people wouldn't recognize us as quickly if he hadn't worked as hard as he does. So that's, he's pretty that's good. Great. Remember what I said in that one Bruce Rock episode? Look for the pretty kids. Well, look for the pretty kids. So oh, this is our oh. seductive mullet. Oh yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've that's very recognizable. Uh, I think I've had that somewhere. I had. I've and then this is our Pacific pig. So that's our... Our West Coast. Oh, IPA. I like that. Yeah. yeah. He does a great job, man. So, yeah. So, that's just, and then I like this one. This is our Blood Orange Sour. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Mad Monkey. Mad Monkey, the Mandrel. And then this is our most iconic DL Cube. Lexington Lake Black. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brews Rock. We hope you enjoyed hearing about our visit to Goose and the Monkey Brew House and our chat with Eric Gibble. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners. And if you're a home brewer, take Eric's advice. Remember that brewing is meant to be fun. Keep that passion alive. Until next time, we're